Hi guys, and welcome back to Q&A episode seven. I hope everyone is well. Um, me and Luke are just coming off the back end of the first FLF practical slash theory seminar, which is really cool uh, that we both enjoyed. And um, how are you, Luke? I'll, uh, I'll introduce you first. Yeah, good. Um, like, yeah, excited like that. That seminar was a lot of fun. Like the feedback's been really positive, and um, which is kind of all we can ask for. Um, and I think, like, like our first one, I think the the biggest takeaway was that the content we put out alongside Chris and James was highly uh, applicable and digestible, and um, you know, not overly complicated. Apart from apart from my first presentation, <laughs> but yeah, but um, but no, I think everyone everyone took away some pretty cool things. Um, so it was a yeah, really, really good weekend. It was very good. Very good. Mm -hmm. when the next one is on the 17th and 18th? Yeah. 19th, I think. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, that's that's going to be the upper body. Upper body. Um, yeah. We, and that was got quite a lot, lot of engagement already. So it's pretty cool. Yeah. Uh, obviously, we put out a Q&A tab last night on the old gram. And we've had quite a few questions come back, which is cool. And today is essentially going to be answering questions that you sent in and topics that are fresh in our mind from kind of preparing for these couple of seminars um, at FLF because we've done quite a lot of background reading and kind of think tanking in terms of this topic, uh, all on program design and general programming for hypertrophy and um, one's pursuit of growing an obscene amount of lean tissue. Um, so yeah, we're going to go through the questions today. I think Lou's got quite a few as well, and I've got quite a few, and uh, we'll just nail through them and try to give as much nugget-type information as possible. Hmm. I'm just looking at mine now. Um, ben has asked, can we discuss our take on Mike Isretel's MRV principles? We did that in a previous q and I want to say that was our first Q&A. What's the first one? Uh, um, maybe not the first one. It was one of the first three. Um, oh, okay, it was the Q&A number two. Um, so that's, that's in there. Um, and I, I like, you know, I think we were quite out there with our views on that one. But um, you go back and listen to that. <laughs> And then, and then there's been some other questions that aren't actually relevant to program design. So, like, someone's asked about fasting, but we'll we'll, we'll leave that one. There is a there is two fasting episodes that probably covers that anyway. Yeah, it's true. And um, and then someone's also asked about position during a split squat. I mean, that's more execution. I think we'll we'll probably leave skip over that one. Apologies, James. Um, but um. In terms of question number one, what do you reckon? The neurological, metabolic, yeah? yeah? So, I don't know, I think he asked you as well. Oliver has asked, can we explain the different training phase types, e.g. lactic, metabolic, neuro? I think he means metabolic, neurological, and hypertrophy. And this is like kind of pushed by the, the guys at N1, like Casim Hansen and people like that in terms of breaking up programming 
into predominantly those types of phases. So you're doing a phase that's more or less exclusively neurological um, in terms of like lower reps and focusing on movement patterns and, and you know heavier loading and quite a lot of neurological stimulus for your nervous system. And then there's a you know phase where you're digging more into mechanical loading, potentially exploring some high rep ranges and hypertrophy being the main goal there. And then a metabolic side of things where you're just trying to accumulate as much metabolic stress within sessions as possible. Um, I'll start with my view on that. And that like, I think, I think it makes sense. Um, the only thing that I have an issue with that with is it's a little bit arbitrary when you consider that all of those three types of training um, have a common, or they all have the same common denominator in the, in the form of the nervous system. So whether you're training more metabolically, more for hypertrophy, more for neurological stimulus, the, the, the nervous system is still doing something. So they are, they are all by definition neurological. Um, but you can't, when you when we've done this in the seminar when we break down the process of muscular contraction it's underpinned by the nervous system like if you don't have a, a functioning nervous system you're you know you're not going to be able to stick, contract a muscle properly and like you know that's when it, even you get onto a metabolic type situation if your ability to stimulate your nervous system to contract muscle tissue isn't particularly great you know the energy demand in that scenario is probably going to make it harder than it would if you're doing heavier lower rep work. Um, but it, you know, it kind of comes down to the, you know, the, the deciding factor in, in all these three scenarios is all the factors are probably allostatic load and energy intake. And it, and it kind of comes down to is someone capable of hand, handling the stress you're putting on them in terms of like heavier loading from a, central nervous system and peripheral nervous system fatigue point of view and are they consuming enough energy to benefit from being able to drive a hypertrophy stimulus off like higher energy demand metabolic work um in the sense of you know people often leave metabolic work into like prep scenarios where they're restricting energy intake and when you consider that not only is metabolic work extremely energy costly in and of itself the process of hypertrophy is also extremely energy costly. So if you're trying to get a benefit out of that with the name of hypertrophy, you probably want to make sure you're doing that around times when your energy intake is pretty decent. Um, and the same goes for like hypertrophy work really. Um, so and I think, you know, I think, I think breaking them up into three different sections and doing one exclusively, yeah, there's some, you know, maybe some logic behind that, but I don't think really it's, I think it's a bit of an oversimplification and I think you, there should always be some element of, of, of like all three emphasizing different rep ranges and stuff like that. Um, but ultimately I think it's all down to, do you have a good, a, a well-functioned, a well-functioning and balanced nervous system? And then you want to bring in your energy intake as the last consideration. But yeah, I mean, what do you think, mate? Yeah, I agree with that. I think it's just a, a case a case of being specific to that client's um, you know positioning in terms of their exposure to training, their ability to handle these different variables, and also to do things, putting things more predominantly within a program that are going to be more applicable to them in that given situation. So, so yeah. that's 
someone new to training may favor you know a specific um, facet of programming in, in regards to how you're loading them and how you're setting up their programming in regards to the exposure to fatigue and then you know a more experienced which we'll talk about in a bit with a later question a more yeah. experienced training might expose themselves to a slightly different stimuli because they're trying to force more of an adaptation than you know a newer client would focus on almost like building a skill first so it doesn't need to let the, the more complex stuff yeah um, absolutely I, I see i, I see the, the concept of splitting it all up because it makes it like really systematic and it gives you a system but in mm. in reality like it's, it's rarely a case of a b c and you just transition perfectly through all three it's like it's, there's going to be a myriad of elements of of every single bit as you move through the process mm. I, th I think one of the biggest benefits i can see from programming in that way is is you know being able to shift focus away from heavier loading and giving joints a bit of a rest you know you get someone who's been smashing a lot of heavy work a they might benefit from driving a metabolic stimulus for a while to be you know because the novelty of that stimulus will be pretty powerful for hypertrophy signaling anyway and then um also the fact that you won't require such heavy loads i mean that's one of the reasons cal and i favor quite a lot of you know blood flow restriction training because it's, it's an opportunity to minimize the amount of joint forces we're placing through certain joint structures that are in essence pretty delicate and you don't want to be smashing them with a, you know an incredible amount of force year round so you know kind of programming in stuff where you're, you're going to be able to take the pressure off and the stress off is not a bad idea um, but ultimately you know if someone you know if someone is trying to get you know get large you know drive hypertrophy you know all three of those mechanisms will be able to do that once if you push them far enough um and that's that's ultimately what it comes down to um yeah so like to, to label one type of training as oh this is hypertrophy training and then oh this is metabolic training you're not going to get hypertrophy from that so that's that's a bit of a fallacy there um i think in Europe, if you go too light too low with rep ranges and too heavy with loading the, the ability to get a hypertrophic response from that is going to be lower but you know you'll still be able to to some degree um i mean if you're like if you're going to sub five reps maybe not but you know there'll be a place for that still i think this is to put that in like a more condensed sentence it would be there's um a lot of them are gonna kind of integrate within one another to an extent but they're yeah. they're not going to be completely um independent things they're potentially at, at, at times going to integrate between each other yeah um, mm. yeah cool question mm. um right i'll file one over I'm trying to think of the best one to ask i guess following on from what we just said as well the question that um Matt Cooney's asked in regards to thoughts on splitting programming into focus phases for hypertrophy, metabolite, and strength training is kind of the same question as well. Mm. Um, yeah. There's, there, there will be arguments for doing that and there'll be arguments against doing that. And it's not that one of them is right and one of them is wrong. It's just realistically what's going to be a most applicable for that client. But in my 
thought process of the long-term goal is is creating a hypertrophic response and I'm never going to go a long way away from what I'm ultimately trying to achieve is this I may manipulate things to keep the body in the best possible position to respond so we may we may adjust you know intensities or the exposure to fatigue or the exposure to a more inflammatory response from kind of triggering a recovery process at times to optimize recovery and put the nervous system back into a, an optimal place to respond from training but i'm never going to go too far away from that end goal of creating mm -hmm. a, a hypertrophic response so you know for me for most of my clients the a they most of them won't have the the skill set to run through a strength block and they're not going to have the fuel substrates to run through a strength block unless i change programming drastically um and i just don't see the like we can still develop and accumulate someone's strength within a within a block where they're still working in you know what would be classified as a hypertrophy type environment. Mm. Um, and again, the same goes for more metabolic type training. You could use that intermittently within your your training year to have times where you know potentially having uh, phases that you're exposing yourself less to. Like heavier eccentric loading to minimize um you know implications on recovery and, and optimize your ability to kind of minimize overreaching and bounce back so to speak mm. i'd say this is probably a good opportunity to just go and talk about like different the stages of contraction and tempo considerations and then motor unit recruitment like untrained to trained individuals we may, we may as well just cover that now yeah, yeah. um but like in terms of, I'll, I'll let Cal do the motor unit because he did that in the in the seminar. But the um, in terms of like stages of muscle contraction, like we want to consider like if we're spending a lot of time doing eccentrics, you know the inflammatory response we're going to create from that is going to be quite a lot higher. Um, and you know when you consider the whole concept of muscle damage as well, um, you know to get that we we need to be loading a muscle in its length and third of its resting length um and the, you know the more we do that eccentrically the greater that muscle damage is going to be and while that is a decent stimulus for hypertrophy you've also got to consider the fact that the performance detriments that come from going there are quite high so training to training to failure and training where you're stimulating a lot of muscle damage yeah it works but you've also got to then be able to make sure that your recovery is outrageous um and uh, and that's where like you know we get onto using slower concentrics and, and that may be where in phases where you'd want to focus more on metabolic work because the, you know across the, the um well in, in a concentric portion of the lift you're you're considerably weaker or i say you're considerably weaker you you your ability to fatigue is a lot higher a lot quicker um yeah i mean the, the people often compare concentrics and eccentrics like you can't strictly compare the two because on a concentric you, you're having to come up with enough force to overcome whatever load you're lifting on an eccentric you're only having to produce enough to control it so the whole thing of we're you know eccentrically a lot stronger you know to some degree yes because we have like the, the aid of passive tissue but at the same time in terms of the force production there's there's a big difference um so we can't really say like if you were to match it in terms of the amount you'd have to do on a concentric and an eccentric you'd have to increase the load on an eccentric and, and you know yeah maybe we are stronger but there's more that comes into it um but the um in terms of how quick we fatigue 
and the, the motor unit recruitment patterns on a concentric, especially if we were going to do those slower, you'd want to think about potentially using that as an opportunity to do more metabolic work and provided you then take that step far enough, um, you would uh, you would still achieve the, the, the higher threshold motor unit recruitment. And that's where, you know, training to failure in that instance, you'd be able to probably be, do, you know, do so pretty safely um, without worrying about accumulating a lot of muscle damage and impairing performance to the same degree. Um, but you'd then use that as metabolic stimulus to be able to, you know, get a hypertrophic response, but minimizing um, kind of inflammation and all that stuff in the process. So it's that that could be a pretty good tool. And, and, and then you couple that with the fact that concentric work requires a lot more energy. Um, you know, there's more energy use in a concentric contraction than any other type. So in terms of burning fuel through fuel sources, um, concentric work where you're going slower is going to be not too bad. So, you know, coming into a competition, you've got to deplete someone or you, you know, you're not, you're looking to minimize inflammation. Switching over to kind of slower concentric work is not a bad way to do that. Um, but yeah, I mean, it, it, it kind of comes down to, you know, again, what, what's, what's relevant for that individual. Right. Yeah. Mm. There are three or four questions that were basically the same question um, that we're asking. Are we seeing you or Luke or your clients training to quote-unquote failure often? Is this always the case and how do you program for this and, and why is failure necessary? And as Luke just said in regards to looking at um, when we look at someone's kind of training age, so to speak, and motor unit recruitment, when we look at the mechanisms of hypertrophy, it's important to realize that whether we're looking at um, you know, mechanical tension, whether we're looking at muscular damage, whether we're looking at some form of more metabolite accumulation, so cell swelling or and, and metabolic stress, any of those mechanisms, once sufficiently achieved, can um, activate high threshold uh, motor unit recruitment. And when we look at trained and untrained individuals, when we look at training to failure, and is it applicable, that untrained individual, so your client that's not been, not been training, for maybe maybe was, has been training for you know, 10, 12, 13, 14 weeks, and their exposure to training, their exposure to mechanical stimulus is very, very low, and they haven't had a lot of exposure to it at all, and then the level of adaptation that they've currently created is pretty inefficient as well. That untrained individual has a lower threshold um, motor unit recruitment achieved initially so they're going to achieve a lower threshold within those uh, motor units but the higher threshold is going to take time that trained individual like me or Luke or probably a lot of our clients now that are already exposed to training pretty sufficiently for years and years and years um, have a higher threshold motor unit recruitment and they're going to achieve that much quicker within the session so when we look at you know whether um, failure is applicable within these populations. The untrained group necessarily will require a lot less exposure to mechanical stimulus um, to achieve the same level of muscular recruitment needed to achieve a hypertrophic response. So in an untrained individual, when we're looking at managing recovery, when we're looking at managing inflammation, when we're looking at putting them in the best possible position within the nervous system to adapt, and that would be more parasympathetic most of the time, although stress is you know, a definite byproduct of what's going on. Um, failure may not be 
as necessary in the under untrained group because we're more so looking at you know ingraining execution ingraining movement patterns acquiring skills and, and, and exercise delivery that untrained individual has a higher propensity to recruit more tissue but obviously at a lower threshold in terms of most unit recruitment but because they can recruit more tissue the level in which they can adapt is much much quicker than that trained individual who's already adapted for a pretty long period of time to the stimulus that they're providing that trained individual has a much higher threshold for most unit recruitment because they're able to expose themselves to greater loads they're able to eccentrically load tissues in the, the length and third of that range with a lot more intensity and a lot more frequently creating more muscular damage, which is gonna then create a greater signaling response and create and proliferate more satellite cells and create more of a regenerative process. So we're getting more cross bridging, we're getting more fiber development, we're getting more adaptation, um, but the amount of tissue they're gonna recruit in the same workload is gonna be less. So to force a, a greater propensity to adapt, we're going to potentially have to expose that trained individual to a higher, higher rate of fatigue and a more frequent exposure to failure, quote unquote, because they're going to need a little bit more to force an adaptation than the untrained individual. Okay, so I don't think, from from me personally speaking, you know, from what I've learned and from how I coach, trainer, trainer, failure. Um, within both parties is not a prerequisite to building muscle. It's not absolutely necessary, but it's definitely more applicable and more required in that trained group than the untrained group, if that makes sense. Yeah, it's basically a case of you have to earn the right to train to failure and then and, and doing so it becomes a more relevant tool. Like and you get another way of looking at it is, you know, trained individuals that uh, are able to like recruit more tissue straight out the gate um you know in that they're basically spreading that that stress we're placing across the muscle far more evenly an untrained individual the stress you're placing on their tissue is going to be far more profound so their adaptation is going to be far quicker um, and, and they're not going to be as efficient at dealing with it so the contractile units within that muscle are going to be like what the fuck um whereas uh a, a trained individual you know the contractile units and, and all the guys you know the signaling that occurs in that muscle is kind of ready for that so it's you know you don't need to push it quite as far in the in the guys that are already getting quite a huge stimulus from it the, the untrained guys so yeah so for those that deal with a lot of general population and, and they're like i want to get big and you're like taking them onto a pendulum squat and pushing them in you know into the floor from session one you don't need to do that. You just need to, you know, put enough of a stimulus there, create enough fatigue, and that does not necessarily involve. I, I mean, it doesn't. You, you've got somebody who's never trained before. You probably don't need to worry about taking them to failure for a, a long time. I mean, I mean, the situations where it's useful. We spoke about this in the seminar. Would be, let's say, you know, we're training quads, and you want to. Take you know show someone what it's like to get to failure. You you doesn't need to be with heavy eccentrics. You can take them there through slow concentrics where you're minimising information so so that they're you know in terms of the detriment they'll get to their ability to come in and perform again later in the week that will be much lower. Um, so you could get them on a leg extension where you're not going to get them into a length and third of that resting length where they're not going to accumulate a lot of muscle damage. 
and focus more on just you know metabolically fatiguing them and getting to failure that way through concentric slow concentric work that may be a good way to give them an idea of what's going to be required of them eventually in terms of feeling what failure feels like but in a much safer manner than getting them on like a hack squat and burying them on you know with four second eccentrics and, and to the point where they can barely move so you know always consider the individual yeah that was yeah that was good is it i think just people were underestimating you know what what's the main difference between uh one of the main differences outside of the training environment between an untrained individual and a trained individual and you can bet damn sure that that trained individual is probably going to have should have a lot more control over recovery outside of training than that untrained individual the untrained individual is going to be so fragile in terms of recovery and balancing the nervous system that mm-hmm. throw any of that stuff at them, it's just going to completely ruin them. Whereas mm-hmm. someone like myself or Luke or any, any of our clients that have been training for some time, their recovery and their ability to flip the switch is going to be immaculate. So mm-hmm. we know that realistically, if you're seeing our clients train to failure, or if you're seeing us train to failure, it's because a, they've earned the right to do it, and B, they've got all the other shit under control that actually facilitates them to be able to do that in the first place. And that, that I think someone asked you, like, why do we preference training to failure in our programming? Um, typically because Cal and I are dealing with people where they've earned the right to do that, um, but also because, you know, people have seen our tracking systems in terms of knowing when someone's pushing too much and getting you know giving people the tools to be able to assess and and kind of ensure that autonomic nervous system is balanced um we 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 know when we're pushing too much and when we need to pull back and we just make sure that all those things are in place um and that's that's why i wouldn't ever push someone that far if we didn't have the ability to track when when we needed to lay it off a bit um but yeah, that, that's that, that question answered. Also, I mean, like everyone has their own bias towards certain certain ways of doing stuff, right? So, to say that me and Cal don't have our own biases is, you know, that's wrong. We do, and um, this stuff just happens to work reasonably well when you get everything else in check. And it's like the post I made, I put it on my story um, yesterday. It might be gone by the time this is out, but the you know there was I put some four week progress pictures up with someone, and it was a case of how had we achieved pretty drastic change in four weeks? And it was a case of we just managed the little things. And like I said, on that story, when you get these little things in check, they become pretty fucking big. So, so, you know, to focus on that, like balancing the, the nervous system out and, and ensuring recovery and you'll be a pretty damn, damn set for progress with regards to hypertrophy. Yeah. Oh, show. Yeah. Um, right, next one. The final one. Um, while I'm doing that, I, I, I'd, uh, I'm just trying to find one, but the, well, I don't know where I put my phone. Oh, here it is. Um, the, um, I, I saw someone training on, you know, the other day, someone put a post up about, you know, their program and with regards to they have a day for like, outer quad and back width and back thickness and all this stuff and and like outer tibialis day. yeah <laughs> everyone wants that mate um but the you know that the, there's a lot of people out there that will be familiar with that and they're like oh you know i've got a day where i'm focusing on my my inner upper chest because that's a lagging body part 
we we can't can't do that. That that's I'm I'm gonna be I'm this is one time where I'm gonna, I'm gonna speak in a definitive and say that is a poor way of programming purely because um you know all we want to aim for is full contractile stimulation and muscle tissue and when we do that we'll be able to get you know we'll be able to get a wider back and a thicker back at the same time the point is when people are kind of focusing on one thing in particular that you know you, you've got to break down when people um do a workout for like upper inner chest and they're doing all this stuff involving cables and flies and they're squeezing their chest as much as they can you know ultimately it's you know you you look at these sessions on paper and they're placing load on that muscle tissue in the same manner across three different exercises you want to be able to understand the anatomy of these muscles and that's one of the things we went through you know where muscles attach what they do what what you know what their force production capabilities are like throughout their entire range and then you want to be able to stimulate that you know as necessary so where someone trains their lats through their full contractile range from fully length into fully shortened and they're placing torque demands in a really smart way throughout that so they're making sure that as you know when they're when that muscle's in its mid-range where it's strongest the, the torque demands are highest so it's having to produce the most force there and as we're getting to those extremes things are dropping off when you program in that manner and you take into account the fact that you're training a muscle throughout its full you know anatomical contractile range you're probably going to find that you get back width and back thickness and upper chest and inner chest because a they don't muscles don't grow that way um you know there isn't an upper an upper inner chest your chest is this one unit that sits across your you know attaches all the way down your sternum down onto your technically onto your like costal fibers of your rib cage and uh, well like on your rib cage um and like there's an abdominal division and then it all in you know inserts onto your humerus the you know that that all works as a unit so even if you're doing like decline work your upper chest is working you've just got to be able to you know it's not a case of oh i've lined up this this fiber with you know these fibers with this bar therefore my lower chest is only contributing on this movement your your upper chest is still doing something because your chest is is you know has to work as a unit same with like lats you know they they you know people think oh, i'm getting my lower lats on on this movement it's like your upper lats are still doing something they've got to because you, you but it doesn't work like that so just make sure as a you know as a coach as a trainer you understand anatomy and you understand how to program a muscle for you know full contractile stimulation and you'll probably find that that method of programming where you're focusing on back width thickness outer cord inner cord whatever it is becomes a little bit obsolete um but that's that's just my view on that <laughs> i don't know if cal would agree uh, i completely agree yeah i think that, that's i think dante first started that when he when he brought like dc training and he brought like width days and thickness yeah. days and stuff and they were like some were like pull down variations and some were row variations yeah. um, but ultimately tissue is going to grow as it, as it grows so um yeah, I mean, and you can look at it in a way that maybe they're doing something smart because by, you know, doing a, a day where they're predominantly doing rows, they're probably loading their lats in a pretty strong range, getting them pretty short. You know, in a in a pulling scenario where they're pulling a lot overhead, they're getting those lats pretty lengthened and, and loading it there. Point is, you 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 may not need that much volume in that particular range. And you know, when we consider, and we spoke about this on the weekend as well, you get a muscle into either extreme, you know, especially a lengthened range. 
well, I say especially length range, both length and short range, your capacity to produce force in that range, given the level of cross bridging within the contractile units of that of that muscle, like the sarcomeres, your force production capabilities are dreadful. So, you know, in terms of applying progressive overload in those scenarios, it's going to be difficult. So if you've got a session where every movement you're getting your lats into a fully lengthened range and you're, have, and you're trying to generate a lot of force there, potential for injury is going to be pretty damn high, but also the potential for adaptation is not going to be amazing because if you're driving a mechanical stimulus where you're trying to produce a lot of force in those sarcomeres and therefore stimulate hypertrophy based off that mechanism, you're not placing that muscle in a particular, you know, a great position to do that. So again, you know, is it necessary? I don't know. Um, but it, you know, it just works for some people and this is where it's like, is it, the, is it the program or is it the fact that these people are just training their asses off and ultimately effort wins out, right? Nice. So you can, you know, you can get technical, but someone is willing to train hard and consistently that that would be enough. <laughs> it's just whether you want to be a little bit smarter about it. Um, so how about, um, so Scott's asked our views on exercise order based off stability um, like looking at self-stabilized movements versus machines versus free weights as you know does fatigue come in as an important factor or are there other things to consider um, when, when programming that in what do you reckon I think it depends on the the contractile length or range of the tissue we're trying to stimulate within that exercise but generally speaking if we're picking an exercise to challenge a muscle in its shortest particular range within that given session and within that given exercise then we're probably going to favor a more stable environment where we can brace or stabilize on something external like a machine or a pad or something it's not it's not completely necessary because people can self-stabilize if their execution is is pretty sound but for me for most people if we're going to challenge a tissue and it's in its shortened range then we're probably going to want to have something helping us stabilize to allow and facilitate effort to achieve that in the first place mm. and then if we're going to eccentrically load something or challenge something through its length and range or particularly through a mid-range where you're typically going to be stronger mechanically then we can probably self-stabilize that and and use something that exposes us to more um you know challenge on trunk stability or just having to facilitate stability yourself through a a barbell or a dumbbell movement where we're we're not having the luxury of having something locking into a specific position and holding us there. Mm. Both both are going to have their place. For me, like I, I I prefer to, especially for from a neurological priming perspective, earlier in the session, I prefer to stay within a stable environment and and challenge a mus muscle and tissue in that shortened position just to a, either stimulate those fibers in that position first, where we're gonna have the greatest ability to actually shorten them and produce force there in the first place because we're gonna be very, very weak there and do, do, do that fresh, or B, um, you know, create some form of neurological stimulus that will then allow an, a better ability to connect and, and tax that target tissue within a less stable environment later down, later in the session. Mm. Yeah, I think I think like like I I just said now, and Cal's just reiterated like we're so weak in the in in the extremes of muscle ranges. Um, like you get a muscle into a 
fully lengthened position, fully shortened position, force production's crap. Um, so your your body's not going to want to go there. And we see that a lot in terms of, you know, people are on a lying leg curl. And as they get into that shortened position, their hips bike up and your body's trying to, you know, it's trying to get out of that position because he knows it's weak there. So it's trying to lengthen your hamstrings from the from the hips while you're trying to shorten it from the knees. Same thing occurs during the leg extension. You know, you start shifting your hips about. People do it on, on you know, fly movements where they're trying to, you know, cable flies are trying to get their chest short and they start shifting their shoulders into elevation and, and all this stuff. The body's very smart and it's going to try and do that. So when you're trying to get a muscle into positions like that, I think stability pays off massively. Um, I would argue personally that stability pays off in every scenario, really, if you're trying to minimize like injury risk and stuff like that, but also maximize output in a muscle. Like the more stable you can get, the more uniform you can make reps, you know, and, and therefore the more, you know, constant and uniform the, the amount of force production you're producing in that tissue is going to be. Um, so, you know, when people kind of have these you know these movements where they can start juggling a lot of stuff and and moving about a lot and you know with a decreased amount of stability the ability for them to maintain a you know a pretty decent amount of torque tension whatever you want to call it on you know within that muscle tissue is going to be quite a lot harder so i i mean i would argue that especially as people are starting out i think the more skilled people get the more they can earn the right to start doing movements and more juggle but those early you know years we're talking we're not talking months we're talking years you, you'll probably pay you'll pay in dividends to to stick to movements where you're pretty damn stable um and you don't have to do a lot of juggling basically um that's that's my view but yeah completely agree mm. it's pretty fucked up if we didn't agree so that's a good job we do agree <laughs> <laughs> This is true. This is true. Um, I'm going to ask a question from um, the guy from Ultimate Fitness in Birmingham, purely for the fact that he's absolutely jacked. Um, yeah, he's got sick, sick, Brad, sick. Brad Deep from Birmingham. He's got a ridiculous physique. I think he just competed in Korea or China or somewhere and did really well. Um, first question he asks is thoughts on programs that rotate every three to four days or within a training rotation as opposed to a standard one week type of program I know for a fact that I always generally use rotations now unless somebody specifies they want it within a specific week yeah um, for me there's, there's two reasons uh, one because we can get more variability within the program itself so we're not using and overusing movement patterns within a short space of time so potentially our ability to overload these overload these movements for a longer period of time is going to be better so instead of having i've got a hack squat on on a monday and i've got a hack squat again at the same intensity on a on a thursday or even you know five days after where potentially the recovery is going to be a little bit hindered there we've got more variability within the movement patterns we're still taxing the same ranges but the, the, the exercise setups and the machines and the profiles potentially that we're using is slightly different. So our ability to continue and sustain overload and progression and stay in that kind of um, acute state of overload for a longer period of time is better. And B, purely 
from an online perspective when I'm programming, if I give people more variety within a program that still achieves the purpose, I have to write a program a lot less frequently. Whereas <laughs> yeah. if, I, if I give them one week in three weeks time, they're going to like, dude, I'm fucking bored. When's the next program coming? And I'm yeah. like, oh God. So um, if I give someone eight or 10 sessions within a program as opposed, as opposed to four or five, it's going to last twice as long and it's going to keep someone happy. Uh, there you have it. There you have it, guys. The reason we do rotations is because we're lazy. We're essentially lazy. <laughs> no, the, I mean, I think I agree with what Cal said. I think um, I think boredom does factor into it a lot, especially with, with people that are new to training and like, if you, you know, if you're relatively restricting the amount of movements they're doing and then there's not a lot of variety, then boredom's going to play into it. Um, but the, I mean, the reasons I use it um, would be, again, like Cal said, to kind of modulate frequency between certain body parts. Like there might be weeks where we want to place certain, you know, a little bit more on on a muscle in this particular range, or or like just complete a little bit more on a particular muscle group entirely and reduce load through another. And then um, I think one of the things that I tend to use it for is being strategic about how we're um, loading certain joint structures in the body. Um, particularly the spine in the sense that there'll be weeks where we, you know, we load up, you know, do quite a lot of movements that might be quite challenging for the guys within this, you know, the joint structure in the spine and the muscles that support the spine. Um, and then, you know, the following week we use that as an opportunity to kind of pick an exercise where we're stimulating the, the muscle in, in a pretty similar way in terms of, what length we're getting it in through its contractile range but again there's a lot more support a lot less demand on the guys supporting the spine and and uh and therefore that i mean we're a kind of minimizing the risk of injury as we go or at least accounting for that um but it just means by the time we get round to that movement again in a couple of weeks time potentially we're going to be in a much better position to perform and we're not going to be carrying the same amount of fatigue through some of those muscles that we want supporting ourselves really well um yeah i mean that that's one of the reasons i use it i think cal's the same yeah the spine, the spine argument is um very very valid for sure because yeah. i've used programs before where i've followed programs before where you know none of that is considered and uh the ability to fuck oneself quite <laughs> is is quite apparent yeah, yeah. I think I think as well. Also, there's like an element of skill learning as well. I mean, if you can expose someone to slightly different movements every other week, you're going to increase the rate of. I mean, you could argue that you're going to slow the rate of skill learning because they're not doing the same movement week to week. But if they're similar enough, or you know, you 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 know, there's enough of a similarity, whatever you want to call it. The 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 ability for them to learn to recruit that muscle tissue is still going to be pretty high and, and again if they're enjoying it more then that's also a positive so yeah mm -hmm. um, one thing we i will cover now before randy's second question is the fact that i had like nine questions on how many sets to reap how many sets per week for chess is optimal uh how many times a week would you train this uh, what's the max and minimum amount of volume per muscle group if hypertrophy is the goal? Um, how many sets per week per body part? Uh, there's loads of questions on volume and sets and how many and how much. And it's impossible to be prescriptive on that. But what 
what we will say and what we did say at the weekend is if you're tracking performance and you're tracking data that will indicate one's ability to recover and manage the nervous system, then you'll know what's optimal based on what the data is telling you. And if you're in an overreach state or heading into an overreach state where the body's starting to facilitate less positive adaptations, to facilitate, uh, you know, it's, it's hindering its ability to recover and adapt from sessions, it's becoming more chronically stressed, it's becoming more sympathetic, um, bias then you'll know that by tracking your data and you'll know that you potentially need to either pull back or manipulate things so if you're tracking what's going on and you're tracking those key players you're going to know if you're not then it's going to be an arbitrary figure you're throwing out of your head because it sounds about right you've read it somewhere so um what i'd say is there's no definitive answer i can give there but if you're tracking those tools um you know a nervous system b performance then you'll know you'll know anyway yeah start start low so if people are doing that, go with less minimum effective dose and, you know, give yourself like two sets for chest and, and then see what happens when you, because when you know you have two sets, you're going to work your ass off in those two sets. Whereas if you've got like 20 sets for chest, you know, in terms of, you know, managing workload across those 20 sets, you're probably going to sandbag quite a lot of those lifts. Um, Whereas, you know, you, you give yourself only a few sets and you, you, the amount of stimulus you're going to create in that tissue is probably going to be higher just because you know you've only got two sets to do it in. Um, I'm not saying start with two sets, but exactly, that's just an example. But the point is minimum effective dose. Just You want to be as efficient as you can um, and you don't want to waste time. And so I had a client yesterday who I've dropped into four days of training a week and, and he was like, oh, man, I want to go back to training six days a week. And I was like, dude, I was like, we'll play the volume card when we, when we want to play the volume card. But until then, that's not a card you want to waste. Um, you know, keep, keep those cards close to your chest so that you know, you have it, have it in the deck. Um, you know, if you, if you've just gone straight in and gone, yeah, I'm going to train six days a week and do 30 sets in each session. It's like, you just shot yourself in the foot in terms of being able to make progress over a long period of time. Um, so, yeah consider that same guy, it's the same guy that goes yeah i'm gonna use three grams of test for my first cycle <laughs> it's <just> so true <laughs> okay then um second question from randy and ben also i'll just say like on that you know anyone would would hear that and be like oh yeah that's that's total bullshit like no one needs to do that. Same thing applies to volume people. When yeah. people go in and do 30 sets for chest and they've never trained before, you're pretty much doing the equivalent of taking three grams a gear on your first cycle. Uh, God. Um, that, that's such a good analogy, though. <laughs> um, regarding bringing up weaker body parts, once execution has been nailed, how would you approach um, increasing rate of development within that given tissue? Ben Shepard and Randy Paul also asked a similar question: training lagging, um, lagging body parts twice a week or three times a week, or just increasing frequency in general. How would you manage programming to ensure recovery is staying as it needs to be? I.e., tagging arms with upper body or lower body, or hamstrings with back, or vice versa, etc. I think you're probably good at, this, at speaking about this because of your um, recent, well, probably not recent, but your 
experience with using um, occlusion as well to tag on body parts, but also, yeah, just talk through your thought process with that. With, uh, with that. I'd say first move up, up the gear. <laughs> no. Three grams to five. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, um, no, I think it kind of comes, I mean, wait, I'll say repeat the question, but no, I think it's just a case of you want to be strategic with, you know, the joint structures that are involved. Like, you know, if you've got weak body parts that you're trying to tag on at the end, you know, a lot of people, you, you know, tag on those smaller body parts. Um, you just want, want to be careful about the amount of load you're placing through those joints. Um, and that's where things like occlusion training, you know, blood flow restriction training are pretty valuable. So like, like a lot of people want to bring up arms and stuff like that. One of the best ways in my opinion, in our opinion to do that would be like tagging that on at the end of an upper or a lower session. But the point there being, you're going to be very time efficient. You're not going to need a lot of stimulus and the stimulus you create is going to be pretty powerful um, in the sense of, you know, the amount of metabolic stress you're going to recruit doing that sort of work is going to be incredibly high. Um, but you're also going to be quite respectful of the, you know, the joint structures that you're involved with there. So you're not going to be putting a stupid amount of load through your elbow joints. Um, you know, in, in the situation someone wants to bring up their shoulders, you know, they don't want to be, if they're doing like kind of light or more metabolic work, the ability to recover from it is very easy, you know, um, and, uh, and they're going to be quite respectful of, of their shoulder joint. And, and the point being, if you're then trying to stimulate that frequently throughout the week, you want to be taking that kind of thing into consideration massively. So when people are frequently, you know, training arms every other day, they want the stimulus on those days to be pretty low, um, or pretty high in relation to how much volume they're doing. So they want to, you know, as much bang for your buck as possible, but they also want to take into like account exercise setup, you know, pick movements where you again, you're lining things up really well with your elbow joints so that you're not putting a lot of um, stress through that joint as you're, as you're contracting that you against that load. And then it would just be a case of making sure recovery is on point and you don't overdo it. And like the same thing we, we just said just then, you know, minimum effective dose, if, if if you've come from training arms once a week, twice a week's enough. You don't need to go straight to four times a week. Um, and and but I think ultimately it comes down to if you have a lagging body part and you want to go with a high frequency approach, um, I would just be careful about the amount of. I think I I personally think it's more a case of taking care of the joint structures. I think. If your recovery is on point and you don't overdo it on the volume perspective, you'll be fine. I just think you want to be most careful about not destroying your knees if it's your quads or your hamstrings and not destroying your elbows if it's your, your biceps, triceps and not destroying your shoulder joints. And, you know, you could go as far as even saying your wrist joints and stuff like that if you're, if you're having to lift heavy loads. But the point is longevity should be the main consideration and, um, and, and just just be smart about it. I think. I mean, would you add anything? I completely agree. Yeah. Sweet. <laughs> Done. Um, <laughs> it's been smart about programming and making sure that if you're, if you're tagging on or introducing higher frequency for muscle groups, then we're not training it in the same modality every time we train it. We've got to have some form of differentiation in terms of how we're stimulating that tissue. Um, yeah. We're not going to, you know, hammer it three times a week in the same in the same um, capacity, we're going to start to just add some variability in terms of how we're targeting that 
because as I said before, all of those mechanisms do have a, uh, an ability to achieve higher motor unit recruitment and achieve a signal response and elicit hypertrophic adaptation. It's just how we use them, how we're recovering in the first place that matters. Yeah. Boom. Amen. Amen. Um, I'm going to try and pick one. I think, I don't know how long we've been going for, like 45 minutes. I'll pick one more juicy one and then we'll... Um, have you got any particular ones that you want to answer? Or is that all of your good ones taxed? Let me have a look. Well, what about the question on fasting? <laughs> Just kidding. Um, I mean, someone said, how often should you vary between periods with low volume and high volume? I think, again, that just comes back to the allostatic load, energy intake. Make sure you kind of adapting stuff in line with that. Stress management. Are you eating enough? That will kind of dictate um and then track those variables heart rate hrv blood pressure blood glucose and you, you'll be able to see when you need to pull back um hmm Oran, does yeah. callum without a beard program more effectively than callum with a beard or are they both on par i'd say callum without a beard programs more effectively gets distracted and rob also says do you always program terrible footwear choices into your lower body workouts for your clients? And the answer is, is yes. And the also answer is Rob, go and find a new coach. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Here's quite a good one. When programming for females, what percentage would you devote to the lower body? 101. <laughs> no, no. Um, slightly more. Yeah, slightly more. It depends on the individual. You get females that have pretty good lower body development. You don't need to go as far. Mm-hmm. Um, well, I think we we've spoken about this before, I believe. Um, but there'll be a lot of females out there that like don't train chest and 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 stuff, and all the upper body work they do is is a uh, you know delt focused and back focused and stuff, and you know. Fair play, you know, if you're trying to bring a certain look to the stage, just remember that, like we spoke about before, the anatomy considerations, stuff like that. If your shoulder joint, you consider that, is is held in place largely by the muscles that attach around it, more so than the actual like ligaments and stuff. Um, if you've got a really, really strong back and a really, really strong medial deltoid like all the you know the delts and, and and the rotator cuffs and stuff like that because they get a lot of stimulus and your chest in comparison is incredibly weak the management of your shoulder joint is going to be kind of in a in a dodgy place so i think you know there'll be a lot of people that were expecting us to say oh yeah we don't do a lot of upper body work and all the stuff we do is delts and back because we're you know that's all women need when you consider the integrity of the shoulder joint don't skimp on chest work um, because you need that thing functioning well to make sure your shoulder joint is healthy. Um, you need it strong. So, you know, the, the percentage of upper work we do, which will depend on the individual, I think, if you answer the question, will also involve chest work for that reason. And, you know, and also that, you know, some some women don't mind having a chest. And if you're dealing with people that are going into like trained categories more than just bikini or something like that 
you need some chest development. But and again, you know, some people just take the chest development thing, but all all I need is upper chest because that's what the judges are going to see. You know, from a functionality perspective as well, make sure you're stimulating your chest fully, even if you don't, if you're not going to present it on stage. Let's say so. I think I think upper body, lower body depends, but just make sure you're training everything. That'd be my my answer. That would be my answer as well. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Should we wrap it? Yeah, well, it's, it's pretty much done now. Um, just right, you had like fifty questions there, but I think there was too many fasting. A lot of them are quite similar, though, right? Yeah, that's true. And, and the ones on fasting, you just people. People. Um. Let me just quickly find this date. One second. Remember that the upper body module at FLF is on the 17th and 18th of November. Um, if you want or are interested in coming to that, either message me, Luke, Mr. James Largy, or Mr. Christopher Knott on Instagram or email. Hmm. Um, and um, I say remember as well. I think this is like the one we did on training before, like we're pretty, pretty within our realms as PTs and coaches to discuss this sort of content. But just in case, you know, if there's anyone out there that isn't um, an exercise professional or if there's things in here that we need, you need to consult your medical professional about, make sure you do so before implementing. Um, especially like, you know, someone who's got blood, blood pressure issues, don't go and do blood flow restriction training. Make sure you get that checked. And if you have a history of high blood pressure, I wouldn't do it. Um, and then, yeah, make sure make sure you're doing all this stuff under supervision of a an exercise professional. Disclaimer done. Disclaimer Ass is covered. Ass is covered. No, no lawsuit. Oui. That's good. But yeah, I think that's good. I think we'll uh, catch you next time. Me and Luke are actually uh, spending next week together. So we're going away to an episode next week and some training footage, yeah. maybe a couple of training features. Um, on we're, going, we're going away for a romantic weekend in, in, in the country. Crayford waits for later. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. So that's good. It's all good. Wrapped up. Awesome. Right, we will. Uh, we'll be back soon. Uh, we've still got um, Dr. Scott Stevenson's podcast coming. I'm still trying to confirm a date with Scott for that because uh, he's extremely busy, um, but that's ready to go. And obviously, next week we will also get a feature between me and Luke. Uh, we'll have Jacques coming on again soon, and we will have Dean coming on again soon, uh, and one mystery guest that isn't uh, public news yet. So. Um, that is all to come. Uh, I, I know about that. Link doesn't even know either. <laughs> I haven't told him yet. <laughs> it was a surprise. Um, so yeah, that's it. All wrapped up for me. All good, Luke? Yep. Hope everyone enjoyed it. Yep. Thank you uh, for your continued support. And we will speak to you soon. See ya.